Acts chapter 4, commencing at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could just say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name in your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here end of the lesson. Thank you, Margaret, and um, good morning, everyone, again. Uh, just before we get into things, just a couple of things from me. Luke mentioned that our family's going away on holiday uh, tomorrow. We, we are. Uh, that means, unfortunately, I can't be with the AAW celebrating on Tuesday, and I'm very sorry about that. I would have loved to have been there, but I'll be thinking of you. Uh, it also means that we'll be finishing our series in Acts today. We, we won't be carrying on. There is no truth to the rumour that that's happened, because in Acts chapter 5, it's the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and I don't want to preach on it. Uh, no, there's a lot of truth in it. Uh, but we would know we will be going back to it and we'll pick up there, which, which fills me with nervousness because that is a passage, isn't it, that makes you feel uncomfortable, but it's great to wrestle with those passages. So when I, when I get back, we'll be picking up that series again. But in the next three weeks, uh, in the news sheet, it says that Luke Haywood is preaching next week. We've had to change that because we forgot about the guest service at the holiday program. So Luke will be preaching in three weeks' time. So it'll be the guest service next week, uh, then another week, and then Luke will be on uh, after that. Uh, if anything crops up while I'm away, then probably Chris in the office and the wardens, Lindley and Andrew, are the people to, um, uh, to chat with. Now let's pray and then we'll get into Acts chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing passage where we see the boldness and the courage and the strength of Peter so clearly. And I pray that this morning as we think about what happened back then, what happened in this man and the motivations for his actions and uh, defiance, that you would um, encourage our hearts and embolden our lives today. Help us think on what this means for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been at St Stephen's for any substantial amount of time, you've probably heard me say before that one of the things that had a huge effect on me becoming a Christian was the way the disciples changed when Jesus was arrested to later on. If you remember when Jesus got arrested, these people were broken, they were fearful, they were um, a terrified bunch, but something changed them, and we've been seeing this in the book of Acts, into a group of, of people that went out into the world and turned world history upside down. And this morning we see this in our passage more clearly than many other parts of the New Testament, because today we see Peter in particular, it's Peter and John, but to shorten it I'm going to focus on Peter, we see Peter. The same Peter who was so afraid when Jesus was arrested, who, do you remember around a fire when a little girl asked him, did you know Jesus? He was so afraid he denied it, even though that he was in no danger. That same Peter now stands up and stands strong in the face of real danger and opposition. 
And you've got to ask yourself when you think about that, why? What changed? And so today we are going to do things slightly differently from normal. It's a very long passage, as you've heard. Instead of going through the verses in, in detail, I'm just going to ask the question, what changed for Peter? And in particular, what does our passage contribute to that? And it's a very valid question to ask. Because as I said, the change is so profound. When Jesus' disciples, when Jesus was arrested, his disciples fell apart. They were a mess. They were alone. No longer did they have their trusted leader with them, the one that they felt safe with, the one they knew was powerful and could protect them. And you may know what that feeling's like when you lose someone like that. It's a wonderful feeling when you're with someone who makes you feel safe when you're a young child with your parent and you feel like you can take on the world, or you're in a difficult or dangerous situation but you're standing next door to a, a police person and, uh, with a gun. Or my, I went to a, a fairly kind of rough high school in Auckland for a couple of years at uh, Selwyn College and my best friend through that period was a, a New Wayan guy called Motu Motuavili. He made me feel confident in life. <laughs> he was as broad as he was tall. He was massive and, and you felt safe when he was around. But when they go, you feel very vulnerable. The disciples had lost Jesus and they crumbled as a result. And Peter, even Peter, the brave one, the one who always stood up for Jesus when you read through the Gospels, the one who was never afraid to speak his mind as you read through the Gospels, as I said, around a campfire, denied that he even knew Jesus to a little girl. That's how crushed he was. He'd lost all confidence His determination had drained away. His courage was absent. And then you read of all the disciples meeting behind locked doors in private now that Jesus is gone. They were so afraid that they would suffer a similar fate, that they too might be arrested or executed. But in our passage today, we see Peter, and this is only weeks removed from when he was making these denials and meeting behind locked doors, Now we see him defiant. Now we see him fearless. Now we will see him say to the uh, the authorities, I will obey God, not you. Nothing will stop me speaking and ministering about Jesus. What changed? Or you can think of the question the other way around. Why did the actions taken against Jesus not succeed in quelling the Jesus movement? When you read through the Gospels, it's clear they wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was getting so much following, he was getting so much influence, so they wanted to stamp that out. Why did Jesus' death not succeed in stamping it out? Part of the success of Roman crucifixion was its function as a deterrent, and it was a deterrent. When you see the crosses and people hanging on them, when you saw the public painful deaths in front of your own eyes, it made very clear to you, don't do this. You do not want to follow in these footsteps. This was part of the success of the Roman Empire. And there's a feeling, we know this, if you cut the head of the snake off, the snake dies. Well, they'd cut the head of the snake off. Jesus had been humiliated in front of all of them. He'd been executed in front of all of them. Uh, So why did it not stop the Jesus movement? Now, I've said in this series already, there's a couple of ways that you can answer this very important question. One, of course, is Jesus' resurrection. The main answer to this question is Jesus' resurrection. Only that really explains the the change in Peter and the disciples. Only something as powerful and radical and reality-altering as seeing death being conquered in front of your very eyes could bring this change about. 
There's also a second reason this change came about, the Spirit coming down on the apostles and emboldening them and empowering them. And we've seen that in the series on Acts. But there are two other motivations from our passage, from these verses, that I want us to see. Because these also gave Peter the courage and the strength to speak this truth in the face of opposition. But first let me just set the scene, because especially if you're a visitor this morning and weren't with us last week, uh, this is a, a, the second part of a two-parter. And what's being set up is a battle, a battle between the religious leaders and Peter. And that battle is going to be played out in the whole book of Acts between religious leaders and other civic leaders and the apostles. But here it's the religious leaders in Jerusalem versus Peter. And if you weren't here last week, you won't know, Peter and John had been walking into the temple and they'd seen there a man born crippled, a man begging for money. He'd been begging for money since the day he was born. He was crippled his whole life. He'd been begging there at the, at the temple. And Peter and uh, John had healed him. Now those famous words of silver and gold have I none, but what I have got I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he, they'd healed him. Well, today we see the result of that healing. And it's incredible, but in a tragic sense. Look at the result of this. We just heard Margaret read it to us. Peter and John are arrested for doing it. In verse 1, we see the hierarchy, the priests, the temple guard captain, the Sadducees, all come up to Peter and John. They've heard what they've done. They were annoyed at what Peter and John have done. Now they're annoyed at what they're teaching, verse 2. Here's freedom of expression, freedom, free speech in danger. And then in verse 3, they throw Peter and John into jail. Unbelievable, isn't it? Something wonderful has taken place, a great act of love, a great act of power, and the response is stamping it out, arrest. Uh, Peter even acknowledges this. When he's responding to the, uh, his accusers in verse 9, if we can have it updated, he says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, that's exactly what was going on. An act of kindness, and yet this is how it's being met. And so what's being set up is a battle between the authorities and Peter. And you can see this as Luke tells the story. He's a very good storyteller, Luke. Have a look at verse 5. Look at all the details. The next day, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Do you see it, Do you see it being set up? The amount of rulers being named, the names all listed, Jerusalem being, it's to show how intimidating this scene is. And for the people that know the New Testament, the question's very obvious. Peter buckled in front of a campfire with a little girl asking him a question when Jesus was arrested. Now he's in front of all the heavy hitters of the land. He's in the central city with all the powerful people around him and he's being interrogated, how will Peter respond? Now I want to make sure that you realise this is not one of the miracles that is kind of fake or phony or no one could verify. I think a lot of people are suspicious of those kind of things. We've got a picture in our mind of a religious meeting where there's a person up the front who says, I can sense the Lord's telling me someone here's got a sore neck. Someone here's got a sore neck and someone stands up with a massive neck brace. Uh, yes, it's you. Yeah, that's what the law is telling You're healed and then they walk out and you never get to see whether they're healed or verified or, or no. And the whole thing seems very doubtful. That's not what went on here. Look at verse 14. The religious leaders themselves knew that this had happened. 
Verse 14, the religious leaders could see the man who'd been healed standing with them and they could say nothing. Verse 16, the religious leaders are speaking together and they say, everybody living in Jerusalem knows Peter and John have done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. They all knew what had happened because this was not an anonymous person. This was someone that they probably had walked past every day that they'd gone to the temple for their whole life because we've already seen from from last week, that this man was born this way. He'd been doing it his whole life. Uh, Verse 22 tells us he was over 40 years old. They'd seen him every day, every week, 40 years going into the temple. If you know someone who has a congenital defect from birth like that, you've known them your whole life, and then you see them healed, restored totally, then you know something powerful's happened. And yet the tragedy is their response is not thanks to God, It's not following the apostles. It's not going up to Peter and John and saying, look, tell us more. How did this happen? They they just want to stamp it out. They want to put an end to it. And I do, this is just an aside, but I do think people today can be like that. They see or feel a sense of the truth of God. Maybe in creation. They, They look out and they see something and go, there must be a God behind this. And yet they suppress it or push it away rather than go with it. They feel God work within them in some kind of powerful way, effective way, and they suppress it and walk away from it instead of embracing it and following it. Well, that's what these rulers do here. They're against Peter and John. And so in verse 18 we're told they're commanding Peter and John, you will not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. In verse 21 they give more threats. So can you see the passages set up as the bigwigs coming in and coming down on Peter and John. And we know... Well, when the bigwigs did this to Jesus, we know how it turned out. And so Peter and John and the other apostles were going, well, we know know the story, we know how it plays out. And so the question is, what will Peter do? Will he back down? And the answer in this chapter is no, he absolutely will not. He will not buckle at all. In verse 13, it talks about the courage of Peter and John. And then in the heart of the passage, really, verse 19, we see Peter's words. He says to them, judge for yourself whether it's right in God's eyes to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Peter says, we will not be silenced. Intimidation, prohibitions, threats, arrest, nothing will stop us, Peter says, speaking about Jesus and what we've seen and heard. And this is what we will see in the rest of the book of Acts. We will see the apostles, not just Peter, not just John, but all the apostles go out and they will risk their life and limb, literally. Literally, because most of the apostles lost their lives because they would not stop speaking about Jesus. Because when the authorities came and threatened them or punished them, they said, no, this is more important to do than even that. They gave their lives for Jesus. And as I've said time and time again in this series, they were so successful, they changed the course of world history. You and I are here today, 2,000 years later, because nothing would stop these people preaching the Lord Jesus. So what changed Peter? Well, apart from seeing Jesus defeat death, and apart from the Holy Spirit coming down, which I've said are the two kind of big ones, there are two other motivations that Peter talks about in this chapter that I think are really important for us to see. Two other motivations that fed uh, and energised Peter. And the first one is Peter knew that Jesus is the only way for salvation. 
Peter knew that Jesus was the only way for salvation. That's what Peter says at the end of his first response to the authorities. Do you see in verse 11, he says, you guys rejected Jesus without realising he's the key, he's the capstone. Then verse 12 is the crucial verse. Peter says to them, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you see the power of that, 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 that sentiment? Peter was convinced Jesus was necessary for the salvation of people, that Jesus was a non-negotiable, required, needed, indispensable, that every person needs Jesus and without Jesus, people are lost and broken forever. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter says. Not much wriggle room there, is it? No other name under heaven by which people can be saved. Not much wriggle room there. Peter was motivated to take whatever came his way and to stand up no matter what because he believed people needed Jesus. It's as simple as that. So I ask you, I've been asking myself this week, do you and I believe that? That people need Jesus? Not just that Jesus may be nice for some people to have, but that they need Jesus. Now today we don't like that kind of sentiment, that kind of dogmatic truth. No one else, found in no one else. No other name, it sounds arrogant. It sounds intolerant. And I've got to say, (laughs) um, sometimes we as Christians are arrogant and intolerant in the way that we say some of these things. Sometimes Christians can be smug and condescending as we speak about Jesus. Or we make things simplistic or speak in a superior way. And the Lord forgive us when we do that. But it's not arrogant if it's true. What does Ben Shapiro say? Facts don't care about your feelings. If it's true, it's true. Truth is important. And there's an intolerance that is entirely right. It's right when we're not tolerant of evil. It's right when we're not tolerant of injustice, when we are intolerant of injustice. It's right when we're intolerant of untruth. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He claimed it himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Peter claims it for him here. Do you believe this? If you don't, and if I don't, then we will deny Jesus easily. We'll disown him quickly. We'll fade and we won't have the conviction to share in the face of opposition or struggle or suffering. And this is a real issue today because I think the culture of these first apostles is more and more becoming the culture of our world. And what I mean by that is that Christianity has for most of its existence been a persecuted minority. That's what they were in the time of these apostles. They were out of step with the culture around them, out of step with the world, different message, different values, different morals. But in the West over the last few hundred years, that hasn't been our experience. It's been very different. Christianity has actually been the main voice. It's helped set the culture and the message and the values. But friends, I have to tell you that's changed. It's changing and it has changed. Christians are more and more falling out of step with the world. Fifty years ago you could say that there's no other name but Jesus and it would be taken one way. Say it again today. And What? Are you saying that Jesus is different from other belief systems or qualitatively more important than Muhammad or Buddha or other? You try saying it today, it's a very different take. Christian virtues and morals today seem very differently. 
And so I want to say that we will not just face scorn today, but more and more you and I may face persecution for what we believe and what we live. What will help us face it courageously is knowing that people need Jesus, that people need Jesus, and that is so important we cannot stop speaking it, shouting it, sharing it, that he alone can bring people restoration and rest and relief and forgiveness and eternal life. And if that's what people need, we need to tell it to them. If we know salvation is in his name only, then we'll keep doing it. Peter knew Jesus was the only way. That motivated him. Secondly, the last thing, Peter knew the hope of the resurrection. Now I want you to notice, this is not saying Peter knew Jesus rose from the dead. Different. Peter knew the hope of the resurrection. Look again at what ticked the authorities off. Dave, do you mind putting up verse 2? Verse 2, what, what annoyed them about their message? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Notice they aren't preaching Jesus rose, they're preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Peter and John were telling them, if you're in Christ, you will rise. If you're in Christ, death is not the end. Death has been conquered, there is something greater waiting for you, the new creation. That is what they're teaching. In other words, Peter knew that Jesus was so powerful that this physical life was not the end and the glorious hope of the new creation is true for all that are in Jesus. Now I want you to think about that for a moment because this is, this is so important. Death is not the end. Therefore, this life is not the be-all and end-all. What we go through in this life does not define us. Jesus does. And if you know that, this changes everything. If you know whatever you go through in life is not everything, that it's temporary and limited, if you know that ahead of you lies a salvation that can never perish, spoil or fade, that bolsters you. That puts steel in your spine. That changes the way you view your current circumstances. If you know that Jesus is the resurrection of the dead and that your circumstances in this life, whatever comes your way, whatever hits you out of the blue, or you've had to live with every day of your life, will not always be the way it is, then you're different. You can cope. You can face things. You can make a stand. You can be like Peter. Christian hope does that. When you know what the future holds, it makes all the difference in the world for the present that you exist in. I do not know what your present is right now, what you are going through right now. But if you're in Jesus, I absolutely know what your future holds and that changes the game. It brings peace and confidence now. It's like road signs. I don't know if this illustration works. I, it does in my mind, so I'm going to share it with you, but if it doesn't, don't tell me. No, come and see me in my office tomorrow. We'll talk about it. <clears throat> so tomorrow, our family are taking a long drive up to the top of the South Island. We're very much looking forward to it. I guarantee two things will happen on that long drive up to the south, top of the South Island. Firstly, we will pass many signs which say a variation on passing lane in two kilometres, passing lane in four kilometres, passing lane in five kilometres. Why do they put those up? You don't need to know. They don't put up signs saying everything else that's coming up, but they do for that. Why? 
Well, it's linked with the second thing that I know is going to happen. I will get stuck at some stage driving behind someone going 65 kilometres an hour in a 100 kilometre per hour zone. And I will respond with patience, gentleness, <laughs> kindness and love. I will get so frustrated. Nothing brings out the ungodliness in me more than frustration while I'm driving. And I will get annoyed and I will get frustrated and I will get ticked off and they put those signs up for me. They put those signs up for people like me struggling with that feeling. Because when impatient drivers, whoever they may be, foolish drivers attempted to do something stupid because of what they're going through, in this, they put those signs up to say, don't worry, in a few kilometres you'll be able to overtake. You'll be able to safely do it. And it changes it. What it does is it says, it's not always going to be like this. And sometime in the future you're going to be able to do something. You will have a chance to overtake nicely, kindly. You can stop with any hand gestures you were thinking of making or anything like that. You'll be able to just go past in a safe way which won't endanger you, your loved ones in the car or anyone else around. And then, it doesn't matter what speed, John, be quiet. (coughs) Then you can bear the frustration now. You can take the irritation now. You can absorb the annoyance and the pain with only a few mutterings. Friends, it's exactly the same with the resurrection. When you know that heaven awaits in five kilometres, when you know that the new creation awaits in three kilometres, when you know that your future is two kilometres away and it's a future where you will be with your Lord and all pain and sorrow is gone and broken relationships are a thing of the past, when you know that, it helps you now. It doesn't take away the pain or the questions or the hurt, but you know with absolute assurance that things will not always be the way they are now and that changes things now. It allows you and I to cope and to not buckle and to get back up again when we've been knocked down. Peter knew the hope of the resurrection, so he would not stop. There's a feeling uh, I've heard that the younger generations are not as resilient as the previous ones. And I didn't know, I hadn't thought about AAW being here, but I bet they're going to agree with me today. And I'm glad that I need some backup. I've been reading over the last few months of the snowflake generations. And uh, what, what that's talking about is young people not being uh, able to cope with life in the same way that previous generations. I've got to say, I'm not completely convinced by it. Uh, Probably because my main experience of uh, the younger generations are my own children and our young adults here at St Stephen's who I've got an enormous respect for and admiration of. But I think there's some justification to it that for whatever reasons, whether it's an increase in mental illness or uh, an increase, there, there is an inability to cope with life at the moment that previous generations didn't have. They would get on with things and uh, carry on with things and some of the younger ones are finding it more difficult to, to, to live uh, with the difficulties and the problems that they face. I think, I'm not an expert on these things but I think there's two reasons for that. One is I do think we're contributing to the problem because we are breeding a generation and raising generations of people that are not equipped to cope with loss or failure. Or We're doing that as we, we teach them in our schools and raise them in our homes. We're protecting them from ever being told they're wrong, ever getting some, or ever being told they're doing, um, they, they've failed something or they've lost something. I cannot believe, Jesse and Molly, both in the last three, four years, do do exams and tests now where if they fail, not that they'd ever fail, when they fail, 
they can reset it. So you just keep resetting it. And uh, so once you leave school and you fail, you're not equipped to know how to cope with. And I think there's probably some good reasons why we've moved in that direction. We're probably overcorrecting for an, over, an impersonal, overly standardised system, but we've gone way too much the other way, so we're making it worse for them. But the other reason that I think generations coming up now can't cope is we've lost Christian hope. It's this. The Christian hope that was so much part and parcel of life is disappearing. And when it does... You've only got now. You've only got what you're wrestling with or struggling with now and the future can look very bleak. No wonder you find things difficult. You lose Christian hope. Individuals and society can't cope with life in the same way. There's truth in that. The resurrection of the dead, you see this, emboldened Peter. It gave him confidence and strength and motivation. This is why he changed from someone who, who denied Jesus because he was so scared to someone who fearlessly stood up in front of the authorities and wouldn't buckle. He knew now that whatever he suffered, whatever he went through, was not the final word because he knew what lay beyond. He'd seen Jesus rise and he knew what that meant for him. Do you and I know that? I've got to finish. Friends, this is why Peter changed from a scared, broken man to a guy who would not buckle in front of the Supreme Court of the time. In the face of threats, with the the real suffering of arrests and punishments that he went through, he would not buckle because he was convinced that Jesus was the only way people had to be saved and that was so important it couldn't be ignored or not done. And secondly, he knew that this life was temporary and momentary so it didn't matter what happened to him. In other words, he knew that Jesus was so important people needed him and he knew that Jesus was so powerful his future was in Jesus' hands no matter what. That is why Peter changed. I pray that we would be challenged by Peter this morning and learn from him. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for Peter, a guy who I'm sure in the Gospel so many of us have enjoyed and seen a bit of ourselves in. He really is the disciple that often puts his foot in his mouth and um, uh, kind of we, we recognise that and uh, can, I guess, sympathise with it. But here we see the opposite. We see him so boldly and courageously stand for the truth of the Lord Jesus because he knew how important Jesus was to this world and he knew the difference Jesus made, not just to this world, but the world to come. I pray that we would take heart and be challenged by, by Peter's uh, attitude so that it may change the way we live our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.